We're going to get right into John chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up. We finished with verse 60 last week, but I always like to kind of back up a little bit so we make sure that we've got our context. As you know, this has been a rather lengthy, ongoing dissertation, if you will, uh, from Jesus there in the synagogue at Capernaum. People had followed him over from Bethsaida because they were very impressed by the free meal he provided, the loaves and the fishes. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to turn that physical feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes into a spiritual uh, dissertation, very important, very deep actually. We saw last week how... uh, It says in verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, this discussion about, I'm the bread of life who came down from heaven. you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have eternal life. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father." From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word, ask that you would anoint the teaching of your word. You promised that your word would not return void. We know that your word is alive, active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, bless our time of study in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was something I just remembered uh, that I wanted to share before we got into the message, and it's just something that I've been uh, experiencing in my own life. I want to read this little passage from Mark, Mark chapter 8, yes, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, then he, Jesus, came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. That's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus would ask him, do you see any? You would think that Jesus would just automatically know that he could, he could see now that he was healed, but Jesus asked him if he saw anything, and he looked up, the man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking which tells us that his vision had been partially restored, but it wasn't clear yet. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Interesting. So uh, again, it wasn't a a long period of time here, but there was a gradual process rather than an instantaneous healing. And, you know, part of my testimony over the years has been that uh, when I committed my life to the Lord at 17, I'd been saved as a young boy, but 
over a period of time, uh, had kind of fallen away. My parents didn't attend church. My cousins, my aunts, my uncles, they all went, but my parents didn't go. And so, actually, I always kind of felt like a little bit of a second-class citizen in the church. I was kind of embarrassed that all my family and friends were there, but my parents weren't there. But nonetheless, I received Christ as a young boy, grew up in the church, stopped going around mid-high, rededicated my life at 17. And that's when the real change began because I was now plugged into a church. I shared the testimony recently how I wasn't given a choice. I had to go three times a week. But I was getting teaching. I was getting ministry. I was growing, for, you know, really for the first time in my life, really learning about spiritual growth and development. And I always pointed back to that time as when the blinders were lifted off of my eyes. Prior to that, it was kind of like going through life, walking in the dark. My perceptions of things were, were um, um, distorted. You know, like so many young people, I, was, I was, had a propensity or a tendency to be on the liberal side of things. Uh, you know, I was just a little bit under the age of... I was at the very end of the draft, uh, Vietnam draft era, got a high lottery number, never had to go to war or worry about that. But an interesting thing, I was, I was part of some Vietnam War protests in high school, you know, and I, in fact, I promoted a big one. I put it on, brought speakers from Arizona State University and different things and rock bands and put on this big Vietnam protest when I was about 16. And then after I rededicated my life to the Lord, I had a total change of heart. I said, God, if you want me to go, I'll go. I'm willing. And I had a whole new understanding and value of life. My whole perspective changed. And so I guess that's how it's supposed to be, right? When you're born again, the blinders are lifted from your eyes and you begin to see things clearly. But the reason I read the story about the blind man I've learned something over the past many years as I've gotten older, and I don't know if it started with my heart attack or what, but this is my experience anyway, that yes, when you get saved, the blinders are removed, you begin to see things clearly, but I think there are more layers that have to come off. And I've shared this with you before too, but and some of the great men and women of faith that I've been exposed to through their, their writings, their books and so forth, um, and interactions with others, is that one of the hallmarks and signs of an ever-growing, maturing believer is the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize how vile and wretched you really are. That might not sit well with you guys, but that's really the truth of the matter. And the reason I share that is because you know, I've been looking back over my life now that I'm 39. <laughs> and I realized how there was just so many years as a believer, as a pastor even, where, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all good. I'm in a good place. You know, I knew I was a sinner, but at the same time, you kind of have this feeling or this sense, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. But the older I get, the more I realize I'm not. I'm not at all. I was like a, a man who saw trees walking. Yeah, the blinders had been removed. I wasn't blind anymore, 
but I still wasn't seeing as clearly as God wanted me to see. And you know, the more you see clearly, the more you realize how much you rely upon and depend upon the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and that's how he wants it, that we are totally dependent upon him, that we have no dependence upon our own flesh. Just something I wanted to share this morning. Hopefully it'll be beneficial to you all as well. I guess even as a believer, the energy, the vibrancy, the enthusiasm of youth can um, cause you not to see things as clearly as you should. I guess that's one of the benefits of getting older. The more we break down physically, the more we realize how important spiritual things are. All right, we've been picking it up in verse 60 where we left off last week. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And again, what they're talking about specifically is the part where Jesus says that you have to eat his flesh, drink his blood. That just blew them away. They didn't get it at all. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. So he didn't overhear them. He knew in himself as the Son of God, Jesus had and has spiritual insight that is off the charts, obviously. He's God incarnate, God in the flesh. He didn't need to hear them talking. He knew what was in their hearts just as he knows what's in all of our hearts. Isn't it funny how some people seem to go through life with this attitude that God probably isn't paying that much attention? He's got other things to worry about. He's too busy. You know, I can just kind of slip through the cracks. Matthew 9, 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So even here on earth, Jesus knew the hearts of men, the thoughts of men. I've talked to you before about how I've experienced in my own life. You probably have too. Not only does God answer our prayers, sometimes he answers our thoughts. You know, when they're good thoughts. And so he knows our hearts. He knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. And so he said to them, again, Jesus' ability to read their minds, if you will, was yet another proof. We've been talking about the proofs that he has laid out before them concerning who he really is, the Son of God, come down from heaven. This is another proof that he was and is indeed, as he himself has said, one with the Father, that he's come down from heaven, God incarnate. This is yet another proof, his ability to know their thoughts even without hearing what they're saying. He said to them, does this offend you? And this is going to be part of our teaching today, but God does test the hearts of men. I hope we all know that and understand that so we're not caught off guard by that. He does. He tests the hearts of men and women. Someone who is easily offended. He says to them, does this offend you? Folks, somebody who is easily offended, and boy, don't we live in that era now. They're going to have a very tough time in their relationship with God 
or lack thereof, as well as their relationships with other people. And so, Luke 7, 23, Jesus says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And again, these folks here are giving the appearance of offense by Jesus' teaching. Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him, so the stumbling block, the rock, is a person, it's a him, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So for those who don't believe or choose not to believe, Jesus is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. But whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Jesus is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to those who can't get past their own mental and emotional hang-ups and preconceptions of who he is and what he's done. How sad it is that there are so many people in this world who have made their decision about Jesus Christ, developed their, their belief about him based upon what other people have told them. Do you realize that? How many there are like that? They don't know who Jesus is. They have no idea. But they've already pre-decided, pre-determined based upon what they've heard, what other people have told them, their own mental and emotional hang-ups and so forth. Folks, this may come as a shock to some, but we have absolutely no right to be offended by God. <laughs> Do you know that? But guess what? He has every right to be offended by us. Think about that. And yet he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. Romans 5.17. For if by the one man's offense, this is speaking of Adam, by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. The reason we all have to die is because of Adam. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, with a big O in my Bible, because it's Jesus, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so the offense originally created by Adam when he disobeyed God in the garden and plunged the entire human race into a sinful state. So basically we can say that beginning with Adam... And from Adam thereon until the present time, God has been offended by the human race because of our sinfulness. And yet, in spite of that, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. God has every right to be offended by us, but he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. So it wouldn't be surprising now, would it, folks, that one of the devil's chief strategies in these last days in order to create chaos and division in our world, would you say there's chaos and division in the world today? One of his chief strategies is to foment extreme offense in the hearts of all people. Perhaps you might remember, like I do, when many of us here today were young, we could tell jokes, Pollock jokes, 
basically any ethnicity, you know, and people would just laugh it off. Kids all had nicknames. They, they used to call me Cowman, Cow Pie. I wasn't crazy about Cow Pie, but my mother raised me with self-confidence, so it didn't bother me too much. But you remember that? People would joke around and tease one another and, you know, and uh, there were <clears throat> different political ideologies and so forth. And, but you, I don't know about you, I don't remember a lot of people just going around offended all the time. You just kind of took it in stride, right? In fact, we, our parents would teach us, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, now words hurt people all the time. Everything you do and say hurts somebody. Somebody gets offended. Why is that happening? It's the enemy's strategy to foment chaos, division in our world. Lost my spot. <laughs> Where is my spot? There it is. <laughs> Yeah, today it's like I'm offended because of your race, your color, your gender, your politics, your wealth, your poverty, your social standing, your position on abortion, your Christian faith, right? And guess what? I guess this is, again, part of the enemy's strategy, but people today don't seem to understand the difference between disagreement and offense. I was talking to someone earlier about this, and it's communication things, you know, uh, like in uh, counseling. I'll have a couple come in, and one party will say that the other party just doesn't listen to them. And truth be told, what they really mean is they're not doing what I want them to do. For a lot of people, when you say, you're not listening to me, oh, I hear you perfectly well, I just don't intend to do it. See? See what I'm saying? So you say, oh, I disagree, but really, your actions, your attitude, your words indicate you don't just disagree, you are offended. And Jesus asked these people, well, does this offend you? Are you offended by what I'm saying? Because if you are, it's a big problem. Then he goes on in verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Because he's been telling them, I am the bread of heaven. I came down from heaven. I've been sent down here by the Father. Now, in actuality, this would happen 50 days after the resurrection, or 40. From Mount of Olives, Jesus would ascend into heaven. But only the apostles would witness that along with a couple of angels. But he's challenging them regarding what it would take. What would it take in order for them to believe in him? They've already seen the miracle of the, of the loaves and fishes. They're, they're struggling with this whole idea that he came down from heaven. He's the bread of life. If they saw him rise up into heaven from where he came, and again, of course, this is prophetic on Jesus' part because that's exactly what's going to happen. Then he goes on, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And this has been Jesus' point throughout this dissertation in the synagogue, in Capernaum. True life, real life, 
And when, when God talks about this, when Jesus talks about it, what he's talking about is eternal life because as we discussed last week, that's what we were created for. We were created to live forever, but man's sin got in the way. So from Jesus' perspective, true life, real life, is eternal life, and it can only be found in our Creator. It is the Spirit, the Spirit of God, who gives life. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, Remember, God created man from the dust of the earth, but when did man really come alive? When God breathed into him, remember? He breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living being. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits. This is going to disappoint a lot of people. The flesh profits how much? Nothing. And yet... The vast majority of most people's time, energy, and money is invested where? In the flesh. Which, boy, that's not a very good return on your investment, is it? When the flesh profits nothing. Zero. I mean, <laughs> everywhere you go now, there's uh, gyms, you know, exercise spaces. Um, it's kind of funny. I th my wife and I were watching a program that was set back in the 50s. And there was one guy who was um, a regular runner, jogger, and people thought he was really weird because nobody did that back then. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. No, nobody ran back then unless you were like an athlete, if you were, you know, an Olympic runner or what have you, a track a professional. People didn't run. Unless you went to school and they made you run. Isn't that interesting? And I'm not saying running is a bad thing. It's just this obsession that's taken place over the last, you know, what, 50, 60, 70 years with physical improvement, exercise, plastic surgery, goes on and on. And boy, the flesh is in full view in this world today, isn't it? And yet... According to Jesus, I think, I think Jesus is probably the definitive word on this, wouldn't you say? The flesh profits nothing. Why does he say that? Because the flesh is temporary. In spite of our best efforts to sustain it and keep it going, under the best of circumstances, every once in a while we read about some other person you know, turning 100, 101, oldest person, blah, blah, blah. But eventually, the flesh gives out, doesn't it? It's temporary. The flesh profits nothing. You can't, they always say, you know, whatever you've accumulated in this life, you can't take it with you. You can't even take this with you. You can't take your, you're going to get a new body if you're a believer. You're going to get an imperishable, incorruptible, immortal, eternal body. But it won't be this one. This one won't make it. Romans 14, 17, Paul writes, The kingdom of God, and that is our ultimate goal to be a part of God's eternal kingdom, is it not? 
Again, the flesh is temporary, this world is temporary, the governments of this world are temporary. The kingdom of God is eternal. And Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, again, it's not about the flesh. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And these are things that we can have here and now. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven, but it all depends on where our focus is. We read that scripture from um, Matthew 6 last week. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. The things that you need for daily sustenance, God will provide. He will take care of you if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All right, verse 64. Jesus says, The words that I speak to you are spirit, not flesh. And I I emphasize this over and over again, that so many people misunderstand and misinterpret the word of God because they think of everything in terms of the temporary, the here and the now, the flesh. And Jesus is always thinking in terms of the spirit, of the eternal. He uses earthly analogies. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So Jesus is attempting to impart to these people spiritual truths that will lead them to eternal life, but the truths of God are only for those who have ears to hear. Again, what kind of ears? Spiritual ears, right? We find the phrases, he who has ears to hear, or he who has an ear to hear, we find those at least nine times in the books of Mark, Luke, and Revelation that Jesus uses those terms. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And again, it's spiritual ears. And that's another thing I pray sometimes for my loved ones is, God, open their eyes that they might see the truth and open their ears that they might hear the truth. John 6, 64. But there are some of you in this group that I'm addressing here today who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. There are some of you here who do not believe. Now, definitely... um, He's not addressing 11 of the 12, but there were others. We know this was a pretty good-sized group that had gathered to hear Jesus, to talk to Jesus. (laughs) Some of you who do not believe, so indicating there were some who did. Again, definitely 11 of the 12. Judas would have been there, but as we know, he wasn't truly a believer. In fact, John even alludes to this, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And then he says, and who would betray him. But again, we've been talking about this in recent weeks. Jesus knew from the beginning. At the beginning of the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. And so, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. God's sovereignty 
versus man's free will. That's what we've been talking about in recent weeks. Jesus knew that for some, his words were falling on deaf ears. But in order for God to be the just and righteous God that he is, all must be given the opportunity. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. You know this one. For many are called, but few are chosen. And we've talked about this. Why are only few chosen? Because out of the many that are called, for God so loved the world, God chooses those who choose him. And he also, Jesus, knew who would betray him. So this appears to be John's little dig on Judas, although perhaps there might be some in this group who would be among those calling out to crucify him, crucify him when he stood before Pilate. If you remember, the, uh, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they incited the mob against Jesus, but there were others there who joined in, crucify him, crucify him. Perhaps some in this group would wind up being part of that group. We don't know. Verse 65, he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. As we read in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So a couple things. Pray for the lost that God will draw them to Jesus. No one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that would be a work of the Holy Spirit drawing people to Jesus. And I've started to become more specific in the way that I pray for people about this. Father, please draw them to Jesus because Jesus is our Savior. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus. And I've told you this in the last several weeks. I said, specific prayers get specific answers. Some people pray, God bless all the missionaries in the world. Amen. I'm not sure how effective that is. Maybe there's some missionaries out there God doesn't want to bless. I remember after 9-1-1, I was at a prophecy conference, and Dave Hunt was there, and he was talking about all the the uh, indications that people might be turning back to God, but, and there were signs, you know, God bless America. And Dave Hunt said, why should God bless America? Why should he? Really? The land of LGBTQ, transgenderism, abortion on demand, abortion up until the moment of birth, and you want God to bless America? America needs to fall on their knees in repentance and brokenness. And then maybe God will bless America. And I'm not anti-America. If you know me at all, you know I've always loved my country. I've, I've said it's the greatest place on earth, or it was, when we were one nation under God. And I know not, there's never been a point in time in America's history when we've been totally 100% Christian. But the fact remains that this nation was built on biblical, godly, Christian values and principles. I was just reading another article about that the other day. And that's one of the things 
that even people from other countries like Alexis de Tocqueville from France who came over in the early 1800s before the Civil War and he acknowledged that what made America great was its fiery pulpits. Anybody got a match? <laughs> we'll set this sucker on fire. What do you think? And one of the things I hear all the time, it's interesting how so many of the great commentators on the conservative side are either Christians or have strong Christian leanings. And one of the complaints I hear coming out of their mouths all the time is that the pastors won't speak out, that the churches have wimped out. This church is not wimping out, and it never will. Pray for the lost, that God will draw them to Jesus. Jesus. Yeshua. Secondly, know and understand God's plan and His will for all people. I just said, Jesus, even though He knew His words were falling on deaf ears with some of the people in the crowd, in order for God to maintain His status as being totally just and righteous and gracious and merciful, the word goes out even to those who won't listen. We must know and understand God's plan. Otherwise, you'll get discouraged. You'll think, why bother? Why tell them? They're not listening. They won't listen. But here's God's will. We read this a week or two ago. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness or slowness. In other words, why is he delaying his return for as long as he has? And that's funny because that's Peter writing in the first century. The first century Christians thought Jesus was coming at any moment. And hopefully every generation since then has believed that because that's what God wants us to believe because it's true. One day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And Jesus could come at any moment. But he's not slow. He's not slack. Why does God delay the coming of Jesus Christ? He is long-suffering, patient toward us, not willing that how many? Any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Pray for the lost that God will draw them to Jesus and know and understand that His will... If his will were done 100% of the time, again telling you that there is a connection between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Calvinism holds that anyone who is not among God's elect cannot choose to place faith in Christ and be saved. And Jesus did not die for them. That's part of the teachings of Calvinism. So that's why I reject Calvinism, which is the predominant belief system in America today, by the way. Let me read that again. Calvinism holds that anyone who is not among God's elect cannot choose to place faith in Christ and be saved. 
And Jesus didn't, wait a minute, what about John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus didn't die for them. Could you ever look somebody in the face and tell them, maybe Jesus didn't die for you. Are you kidding me? Again, why are there so many problems with the church today? Bad doctrine, false doctrine, bad teaching that is embraced by the multitudes. Again, I will quote from my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith. He used to use this little story, if you will. He'd say, what, if somebody comes up to you and says, what if I'm not chosen? Chuck would look at them and say, choose him and find out. Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. So again, Jesus is speaking to a group of people knowing that some of them don't have ears to hear, but he's telling them anyway. We should take on that same attitude, that same approach, and trust God for the outcome. Remember the parable of the seed and the sower? Only 25% of the seed produced a desirable result. Remember that? Is it worth it? Absolutely. You scatter the seed and trust God to bring forth the increase, right? It's our job to scatter the seed. It's his job to bring forth a harvest. Okay. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. Paul writing to Timothy says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, check this out, who desires all men to be saved. Why would God desire for all men to be saved if all men can't? be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth again the only reason some aren't saved is because of free will the Calvinists would argue well that man is not saved by works and for man to exercise his free will to choose Christ is a work I disagree I disagree it's not a work it's simply acknowledging him for who he is and what he has done. God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved. That's good news. That means everybody can be saved. Everybody won't be saved because not everybody will choose Christ. But that should give you confidence in sharing your faith that anybody can be, and if they choose to be, they will be. But your job is simply to tell them to spread the seed, spread the word. All right, verse 66. This is that one we talked about last week, the infamous 666. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. 
As I mentioned earlier, God does and will, this is so important, folks. God does and will allow us to be tested in different ways throughout our lives to prove, not to him, he already knows, to prove to us that our faith is genuine. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I wish this was taught more, understood more. So many people are stumbled because they are led to believe or somehow have erroneously come to believe that when they receive Christ, their life's going to be perfect. Tiptoe through the tulips with Tiny Tim. No. In fact, your life will get harder than it's ever been. The only difference is you'll have God there with you to walk with you through it. Believe me, the devil's a lot less likely to mess with you if you're on his side. Hello! Right? It's not rocket science. Anyone, folks, we know this. You see it all the time with the movie stars, the athletes, the Grammy Award winner, musicians. And I'm not knocking their faith, but you see a lot of them get up and they praise God for my award, right? Praise God, I'm going to the Super Bowl. You know what? It's easy to praise God and claim to be his disciple when things are going well. Is there anything that God could do or allow or require of you that would cause you to turn away? That's an important question to ask yourself. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Is there anything God could do or allow? Again, some, some people blame God for everything. All good things come down from God. But he allows things. He allows, just like he allowed the devil to mess with Job. He allows things. Is there anything he could do or allow or require of you? I want you to go to Africa and be a missionary. I don't remember if that, there's, that might be the country my wife used to say she never would go to. By God's grace, we haven't been sent there. <laughs> but you never know. Is there anything that he could allow or do or require of you that would cause you to turn away? You're thinking no, but I've seen it over and over again. Think of what God asked Abraham to do. Do you remember that one? Genesis 22.1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. I told you God tests his people. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Just bite the bullet and hang on. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. You got to give Abraham credit. He didn't try to hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden. 
Here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. Sorry, but Ishmael didn't count. We're still witnessing that today in the Middle East. That's why the Middle East is like it is. If it were not for Ishmael. Poor Ishmael. I mean, he didn't ask to be born. It wasn't his fault. Nonetheless, we have seen the consequences. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, of course. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham didn't turn away from God. Would you have? Many would. Oh, I'm sorry, God. Not doing it. That's crossing the line. You and I are finished. Not Abraham. Father Abraham. Think of Job and all that he went through. This is a long passage, but I'm going to read it. Job 1.13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, also another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another <laughs> also came along and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You think all these guys escaping to tell was a coincidence? Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, all appropriate acts for mourning, and he fell to the ground, and what did he do? Worshipped. Now what did his wife tell him at one point? Come on, Job, curse God and die. But he didn't. He worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb with nothing, not a stitch of clothing on, no possessions. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave all of this prosperity, this wealth, the kids, the animals, everything. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, all this, I would ha have a hard time believing anybody in this room has gone through as much as Job went through. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but even if you have gone through as much as Job has or did, look at how it ends up for Job. In all this, Job did not sin. He did not become offended nor charge God with wrongdoing. Wow. The Word of God makes it clear that we are to count the cost, folks. This is another very important teaching that is not taught as much as it should be. We are told to count the cost before committing to be a follower of Christ. However, many do not count that cost. Luke 14, 26 through 33. If anyone comes to me, says Jesus, and does not hate his father and mother, 
wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what does he mean by that? To literally hate, he means that you must love God more. If push comes to shove, yes, God, Ed said it in the communion. God comes first before father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life. Not that you're to commit suicide, but as we'll talk about in a moment as we try to wrap this up, denying yourself, dying to self, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And again, people will mock God. They will mock the Lord Jesus because they see people like this who didn't count the cost. They get part of the way into their so-called Christian walk and they fizzle out, they fade out, and people mock God for it. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. What's Jesus saying here? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciple. Does that mean every believer has to take a vow of poverty? No. It just means if there's anything in your life you're not willing to let go of to follow God, you've got a problem. There are probably, these are probably not verses that are typically shared with someone who's being challenged to receive Christ. Right? I, I just want to tell you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He loves you. If you will receive him into your heart, confess your sins, ask him his forgiveness, you'll be born again. Yes, it's all true, but what about this? What about Mark 8, 34? When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, to follow me. We talked about this last week. That's what it means to be a disciple. You're a follower. God leads you follow. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, to follow me, let him what? Deny himself. We talked about this. Dead people don't have rights. Nobody can violate your rights or offend you because you're dead. Get it? If you're getting offended with people, if you feel like your rights are being violated, you're not dead. And if you're not dead, then you're not alive. Because Jesus said in order to live, you have to die. In order to live, you have to die. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Yes, crucifying the flesh, folks, is a daily thing. Paul said, I beat my body into submission because it keeps fighting back. The old man versus the new man. The old nature versus the new nature. The flesh versus the spirit. It's a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the godly way. The cross that we're called to bear is the cross of self-denial. People think, 
Oh, am I going to have to suffer? Am I going to be a martyr? Are they going to... But again, self-denial. Whatever that looks like for you in your life. Anything that gets between you and God. And yet many pastors, teachers, preachers, and churches are not teaching this. That's one of the reasons some people like me have gone after people like Rick Warren and Joel Osteen. They don't tell the whole story. It's like the military recruiter from Private Benjamin. Now, here's, this is going to be your condo on the, on the Mediterranean right here. Yeah, right. Look at these wonderful meals they're going to be preparing for you in the dining room. It's all a bunch of baloney to get you to sign up. I want somebody to sign up who knows what the cost is going to be. Because that's the person who will take it seriously, who will follow through, who will persevere, who will endure, who will fight the good fight of the faith. That's what God is calling us to. No wonder so many people, like some in this group, go back and walk with him no more when the trials and testings come their way. Next week's follow-up question from Jesus to the Twelve is one that we might want to ask ourselves. And we'll, we'll investigate this next week. In verse 67, Jesus said to the Twelve, so he takes them apart from the rest, do you also want to go away? Let's stand. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. If you have a prayer request, raise your hand, please. And I would encourage anyone, we will lift all of those requests up to the Lord. I see your hands. God sees your hands. But I want to challenge some of you here today as well. We talked about self-examination during the communion. Ask the Lord right now, the Holy Spirit, to search your heart. Are you where you should be, where you need to be? God is loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving, but he also shines his light into the darkened corners of our lives. There may be some things this morning you need to ask forgiveness for, to repent of. Maybe you need to recommit, rededicate your life. Maybe you realize you haven't been taking it as seriously as you should. Maybe you haven't been working on dying to self, denying self, taking up your cross, following him, making sure there's nothing that would prevent you from following him, nothing that he could do or allow or require of you that would cause you to turn away. Just ask the Holy Spirit right now to show you what's inside of you, that your faith might be proven genuine. And if you're here this morning and you don't really believe that you're a true follower of Christ, you have not been born again, I would encourage you right now to ask God to forgive you of your sins, acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who died on the cross for your sins, invite him to come and live inside of you that you might be born again by the Spirit of God and receive the precious gift of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can do that right now. Just invite him in right now. And Father, I lift each one up here today and pray that you'd help us all to practice self-examination, to be open-hearted, open-minded to the revelations of your Holy Spirit working inside of us, that we might truly know where we stand with you, Lord, that we would not go through life uh, in self-deception. Lord, please, we want you to confirm to us the genuine quality of our faith. And Lord, we know we're not perfect. We know we fall way short. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. 
to uh, wash us and cleanse us with the precious blood of Christ and renew a right spirit within us and help us, Lord, to take up that cross, to deny ourselves and to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who's discouraged in their walk with you, that you would encourage them, give them hope, give them faith, give them strength, and know, Lord, that it's not our strength, it's not our resources that we have within ourselves, it is your power of your Holy Spirit working in us that enables us to will and to do according to your good pleasure, Lord. Father, I lift up those with health issues, Lord, whether it be a, a, a virus, an infection, a disease, an injury. Lord, we pray for healing. Lord, you are our healer. We know that you've blessed us with medical personnel and, and medicine and different things to help. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you are our healer. And we pray for healing, for strength, for those that are struggling uh, with physical element, uh, ailments and issues in their bodies. Lord, encouragement today. Lord, pain, uh, discomfort, sickness can be very discouraging. We pray for encouragement. Lord, there seems to be a rash of flu going around. We pray that you'd heal all those who have come down with that affliction. I think of Carl Hunt, who's come down with COVID. Different ones, Father, you know every one of them. And we pray for your healing touch to be upon them, whether it's somebody in this room or somebody that we're thinking of right now and praying for, somebody that's watching online. We pray that you would pour out your healing power in Jesus' name. We also pray for those struggling with mental and emotional issues, for anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, uh, anxiety, je jealousy, bitterness, uh, anger. Lord, just heal us and deliver us, we pray. And please forgive us for harboring any of those feelings that we shouldn't be harboring, Lord. You told us not to uh, let the sun go down on our wrath, that we would not let any root of bitterness grow up within us. Lord, and I pray where there has been a root of bitterness that you would uproot it. We give you permission to uproot that bitterness, to take it from us, Lord, that we should not harbor any bitterness or resentment towards anyone. Lord, we talked about not being easily offended. Please help us and forgive us if we are harboring uh, unconfessed, unrepentant offense in our hearts. Please set us free in the name of Jesus and forgive us, we ask in Jesus' name. Pray, Lord, for um, relationships that have been damaged or broken, that you would just heal those relationships. Help us to be instruments of reconciliation, restoration, forgiveness. Lord, use us as your instruments to bring forth repair of broken and damaged relationships, whether it be a marriage, a friendship, a work relationship, wherever it is, the neighborhood, school. Help us to, be, as much as possible, your word tells us, we're to be at peace with all men. Help us to be peacemakers, we pray in Jesus' name. And finally, we lift up those with economic issues, Father. Lord, help us all to be encouraged today, wherever we're at economically, Lord, that you're our provider, you're in control, and uh, the thief may come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but you've come, we might have life and life more abundantly. We trust you to provide, strengthen our faith, give us wisdom and guidance on how to manage our resources, and where those resources fall short, we pray that you would come in like a flood and make provision. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus, and we ask you to receive now our final offering of praise here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.